Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Tiadam Sulongkumer, the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Thomas Simpson to talk about his book, The Foreigner in British India, Space, Science, and Power in the 19th Century. Now, this is a really interesting book because also of the place that I'm come, I come from, the Northeast India. And this is where the author talks about the Northwest West and the Northeast um, India and also the colonial administration. And this is where the author also talks about some desirable trends that are there in the colonial frontiers in this part of India. So um, I'm very excited to delve into the contents of the book and to talk with author himself. So uh, without much discussion, um, let me straight away go to the author himself and ask something about himself. So Dr. Thomas Simpson, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah. Something about myself. Well, um, I suppose uh, this is probably a boring thing to lead with, but um, I'm currently based at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Um, I've been lucky to be part for the last few years of actually quite a different project to the one that we'll be talking about today, um, which is called Making Climate History uh, and picks up, I guess, on some of the themes that I do look at in the book. Um, It looks, uh, I guess, at the history of environmental um, sciences, um, particularly climate sciences, unsurprisingly. Um, and uh, I've really enjoyed being part of a collaborative team. I'm just about to start uh, as an associate prof uh, in environmental history at the University of Warwick, um, which I'm also excited about. Um, So I guess my work has taken a more sort of environmental turn um, since uh, this book came out. Um, But this comes out of, uh, I guess, some really sort of inspirational teachers that I had along the way as much as anything. So one of my first... um, teachers. I was an undergraduate at the London School of Economics quite a long time ago now, I'm uh, sorry to say. Um, One of my teachers there um, was Benjamin Hopkins, um, who is, I guess, one of the real leading scholars on the Northwest frontier. Um, And I think that although maybe I didn't know it at the time, you know, some of his lectures that he gave, um, which told these, you know, amazing accounts of, uh, should we say, trade across the Afghan um, Pakistan, as now is frontier, um, and the sort of Central Asia connections to colonial South Asia, um, really piqued my interest. Um, and I ended up working on frontier India from that. So that's a little about where I'm at now and sort of where my kind of scholarly career took me, uh, well, where my scholarly career went to take me up to the book. Um, I guess that, yeah, I, I I don't want to say a lot more now. I'd rather sort of take questions, I guess. But uh, that's a little about a little about me now. 
Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, um, you have told something about your book as to how did you come about it. Now, obviously, um, I mean, you are to take, talking about two aspects that is Northwest and the Northeast frontier. So, and I mean, the book interestingly covers um, very interesting aspect of the colonial administration and all. And obviously, you also kind of mentioned something about your academic background. But can you kind of delve deeper into how did you come about this work and how did you went on, you know, doing this work in terms of the production of this work into a book and, you know, the arguments that you produced? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, I think, uh, you know, if, if I'm to make this a little autobiographical, um. One of the things that really, so, so along with the lectures from Benjamin Hopkins that I mentioned that I, I listened to pretty intently as an undergraduate, um, I think one of the things that I read that really got me interested and was just one of those experiences, and I, I hope kind of most people have these as, you know, at some stage in their student career, um, where you read something and you just feel like you want to delve into it you know you've just got to know more about this and kind of get to grips with what's going on i had that with of all things um the uh romans lecture by george curzon so curzon was viceroy of india from uh, 1899 through um until 1905 um this was a lecture he gave in 1907 at oxford university a very prestigious lecture series a sort of named lecture series and I remember quite distinctly reading the, obviously the printed version um, of of this lecture, um, and just being sort of having this moment of intense interest, where right at the end of what at times is quite a sort of laborious <laughs> lecture that's very kind of. Uh, of a piece with a lot of like high imperial geopolitics um, talking about sort of the scientific advance of frontiers and border making. Um, And to, to, anyway, to a historian like me who was relatively well versed at that stage in kind of high imperial um, thought uh, and and strategy, um, this was all fairly straightforward. Um, Right at the end of the lecture, and this is something I talk about a bit in the conclusion of the book, um, he kind of executes the, what seemed to me like a really profound turn in his thinking where he sort of says, but actually, you know, there's no such, it's sort of, there's no possibility of getting to a scientific frontier. And if we were to get a scientific frontier, if we were to have these very crisp, delineated, unitary boundaries, it would be a profound problem for empire and for what he sort of thought of as kind of anglo-saxon civilization so this very like racialized um kind of notion of what it was to be an imperial administrator and it seemed as though you know this was totally against what had come before and i ended up thinking you know i just want i I really want to kind of explore you know, how frontiers were thought about and what kind of impact they had on uh i suppose first and foremost, administrators, um, kind of idea of what they were doing in colonial India. Um, and, and how do we get to this sort of situation where you seem to have a very kind of paradoxical pairing of, on the one hand, this insistence on a kind of scientific geopolitics, and on the other, an equally strong insistence on the importance of the kind of the so-called man on the spot, <laughs> the administrator in these often very hostile environments, supposedly surrounded by very hostile populations, um, 
which is often talked about in in the colonial archive. Um, and you know, how do these two seemingly quite sort of discrepant things kind of fit together? You know, what's the dynamic between them? So I, I remember reading that as a, I guess, a master's student. Um, I think it would have been a master's student. I was still in London. And then from there, um, did PhD work under the fantastic supervision of, of Sujit Sivasundram uh, at the University of Cambridge. I was lucky enough to spend, you know, three and a half very happy years as a PhD student there. And it was out of that research that this book comes. Um, I was also lucky enough to have a little time afterwards to uh, go back to some archives to go to some new archives uh, not least um the uh brilliant archive the assam state archive at dispur um which uh i think at that stage had been quite recently kind of substantially renovated um and certainly the kind of cataloging improved so i was able to do that after my phd finished um and get some really useful material and this book is the kind of uh, you know, long, well, at least in my mind, long awaited uh, product um, of a lot of archival labor, um, a lot of really inspirational conversations uh, with uh, a fine array of scholars on frontiers in South Asia, it should be said, who are around at the moment, many of whom I'm, you know, lucky enough to have had quite extensive contact with. Um, and also, uh, you know, some intensive reading of you know various different historiographies um that that fascinated me at various points um so that's the that's a kind of potted version <laughs> uh, of how the book came about i'm happy to go into more details on any of that if you wish but i'll, I'll leave it there for the moment yeah i think uh, such an interesting uh, journey and fascinating journey that uh, you have had in coming uh, to to research on a topic like this and also the book coming together right um, that's really interesting now to set a kind of dawn and the foundation for the discussion to come uh, can you tell us something about uh, the history and also some of the understanding of the frontier that uh, were there as you were doing a lot of archival research and as you were doing a lot of the uh, material reviews, right, uh, that were there. So can you tell us in short something about the history and the uh, understanding that was there? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I guess the first thing to say for, you know, those who perhaps, uh, unlike you, um, aren't, you know, super familiar um, with these regions, um, is that what the British conceived of and, and denoted as the northwest and the northeast frontiers of, of British India were a long distance apart. Um, so what kind of came to be thought of as the northeast frontier um, really kind of begins, at least according to probably the most the, the d- dominant uh, colonial definition um, east of Bhutan um, and sort of continues ar- around the stretch of mountains that fringes the Brahmaputra Valley um, and Assam. Um, and then the northwest frontier is, is you know, now, I guess, the uh, comprises regions that are the borderlands between Pakistan and uh, to the south, Iran, and a little further north, Afghanistan. And then, again, according to different definitions, you might sort of continue that um, round to an area that a good friend uh, of mine and a sort of approximate contemporary as a PhD scholar, Carl Gardner, has looked at in a brilliant recent book as well, um, round to Ladakh um, and the kind of what's now the India-China um, uh, or India-Tibet um, frontier 
um, in Western Tibet. So look, these are vast regions in their own right. They're separated by a substantial distance <laughs> in the middle. Um, and uh, I guess one of the very significant things for me is that they are almost always, or they have almost always been treated separately by historians. Um, they're a very different and it should be said, you know, incredibly well developed historiographies for each region. Um, some of which obviously takes sub portions of each region as, as the focus. Um, but very little, I think it's fair to say, by way of serious thinking between the two. Um, thinking about you know them in either comparative or connected terms. Um, so for me, I sort of wanted to think about these areas uh, as connected. Um, so I don't think it's just comparative. Um, what I want to argue in the book is that colonial personnel connected the two in various ways. They connected the two in imaginative terms, um, i.e. by thinking of these two, in many ways, quite disparate arenas as relatively similar and kind of part of a moderately coherent British Indian frontier. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but also in material terms. Um, so I'm very interested uh, and became increasingly interested, I guess, influenced by history of science work that takes very seriously the materials that are used to make knowledge and to kind of enact policy, <laughs> particularly things like borders, um, and how those materials were often in transit between the two frontier regions. Um, and it should be said it wasn't just materials, it was also individuals. Uh, so particular colonial personnel became, particularly later in the 19th century, renowned as, and designated often, formally designated as frontier administrators or frontier surveyors. Um, so, you know, they, they, their skill set was taken to be relevant to the frontier of British India. And often it should be said, from imperial and colonial frontiers elsewhere beyond the Indian subcontinent. Um, so I, I guess that's the kind of this insistence on the connected nature of these two regions that are often dealt with separately. Um, I think I was also interested... So. As you've mentioned, you know, the book is concerned with administration. And if you like, two, uh, sorry, three of the five chapters are broadly concerned with elements that are broadly administrative. So one chapter is on bordering, one is on violence, uh, and one is on administration. Um, so administrative schemes and policy making. But then there are also two that are very much concerned with particular field sciences. Um, so ethnography, and anthropology um, forms one chapter, um, and surveying and cartography um, forms uh, another. Um, and so I think part of what I was trying to do as well was to insist that frontiers were incredibly significant spaces of knowledge production, um, which I think is something that 
is often overlooked. Um, there's some really good recent work that doesn't overlook it at all. I'm thinking again of of some you know friends and uh, kind of close colleagues of a, of a sort of mine. Uh, Lachlan Fleetwood uh, is one. Moritz von Brescius, who's written about the Schlagenfight. Uh, uh, brothers' expeditions um, into Central Asia is another. So I think there has been a focus in recent years on knowledge production in frontiers. Um, but it was kind of commonplace to, I think, all too often at least, commonplace to think of frontiers as places where colonial knowledge kind of runs out, right? Chris Bailey f- famously uh, put it, put it as you know frontiers were kind of spaces of information famines um, in a, you know his brilliant work um, on empire and information. Um, I think what I wanted to say was slightly different. It, it not so much information famine as kind of peculiar forms of information and knowledge, um, but sometimes incredibly productive <laughs> and significant forms of information and knowledge um, that you know, really inflected how field sciences were practiced um, every bit as much as, the, you know, these regions and their inhabitants inflected the way that administration was carried out um, by colonial personnel. So I wanted really to emphasise the importance of knowledge and science um, in frontier spaces, along with, I think, the more thoroughly dealt with topics to do with administration and state building and sort of forms of state power. Um, I hope that makes some sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I think uh, with that backdrop in mind, I think it's good to go into the arguments that you make in the chapters. And interestingly, the first chapter is where you start with borders. And you also talk about three periods of border making, right? And so that is really interesting because now when we think about borders, and especially me coming from Northeast India, border is a very contested as well as a volatile space in terms of what it might entail in terms of the administration now, right, in the, the present Indian government administration and how we understand borders and the, the significance of how, you know, the, the tribes kind of um, talk about their um, um, uh, their own aspect of identity and the border and all of those aspects are there. So um, can, can, you, can you lay down the arguments that you put out in terms of uh, when you're talking about the three stages of border making? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So this is one of the many things that, as I mentioned before we started this podcast, uh, I'm probably going to struggle to remember. And you've just given a much better account of than I will, um, just because of the the nature of having completed the book uh, almost three years ago now, two and a half years ago. Um, However, I'll do my best. Um, So... (laughs) As you say, yeah, I I basically discern three broad stages. I think the first thing to say, and something that I'm sort of perhaps at pains to insist on in the chapter, is that what I'm not arguing is that those three stages were, uh, if you like, a, a sort of an absolute evolution from a kind of hazy frontier to a fixed boundary line. That's an argument that you often get. Um, in work dealing not only with South Asia, but also just, you know, imperial and national boundaries during the long 19th century, is that, you know, start of the long 19th century, broadly construed, you're looking at a hazy sort of frontier where there are overlapping realms of authority, um, kind of, 
you know, subcontracted forms of sovereignty and suzerainty, etc., etc., and that over the course of the 19th century in particular, um, you kind of come to a situation where, you know, territory is, as it were, solid <laughs> and clearly demarcated. And what I'm, I'm kind of speaking against that, um, you know, I, I, what, what I'm sort of saying is that across those three periods, um, actually we see very similar shortcomings and tensions even if the form of the kind of border making projects evolves a little over that time um so basically yeah those three periods that i allude to um are the the first begins at slightly different times in the northeast and the northwest so we're looking really at these sort of 1820s 1830s in the northeast um following the british um military invasion and annexation of Assam, um, which was something of a long-winded process, but sort of begins in earnest in 1824. Um, And then really we're looking at the 1840s and 50s in Sindh and Punjab, respectively, um, in the Northwest. Um, And in that era, really there's a kind of a concern to put in place borders um, on the part that this is by British officials, concerned to put in place borders that were partially porous. Um, so they would, on the one hand, secure, um, you know, colonial sovereignty in the forms of things like revenue collection um, and kind of, you know, the acquisition of various forms of capital in, as it were, the fully governed regions, which are often denoted as plains. So the sort of lowland, supposedly lowland regions, Um while also allowing those same officials forms of freedom of movement and often military action in the supposedly ungoverned areas beyond the boundary, um, which were generally denoted as hill or in the case of uh, Sindh and Baluchistan desert. Um, So, Th- that era, I try to sort of claim, was marked out by a particular type of boundary that was broadly common to northwest and northeast, this kind of certain form of porous uh, border making. Um, I then identify a kind of, I, I suppose, almost like a an interruption to this bordering regime, which doesn't form a period in and of itself, according to my categorization, but it's kind of the interlude between type one and type two, um, during particularly the 1850s and into the 1860s, um, where there was something of a kind of retrenchment from uh, those more um, kind of actively interventionist policies beyond the formal boundaries of colonial sovereignty. Um, Albeit that was it was a very partial <laughs> uh, sort of stoppage to those activities, and there were interruptions and there were instances where they you know those kind of broad principles were violated, but there was something of a sort of stepping back um, from those activities. But then we come to the second period um, beginning in the 1860s and and here the chronologies are somewhat more aligned, I think between northeast and northwest. And really, sort of at its most pronounced in the 1870s. Um, and it's a period marked out by what I term in the book uh, official subversion. Um, and by that, I essentially mean colonial officials, administrators, and soldiers in particular, um, 
you know, actively violating the boundaries that they are ostensibly tasked with upholding um, and violating them in order most often uh, to kind of exercise certain forms of essentially personal power. Um, so almost to act as kind of petty sovereigns in their own right. Um, so I highlight you know, for instance, uh, perhaps the, the most sort of strident case of this is uh, Robert Sanderman, um, an official who starts out as an official in Punjab, then becomes uh, agent to the governor general in Baluchistan, an area of intense colonial activity um, around the time of the war with Afghanistan in the late 1870s. Um, and uh, Sanderman was repeatedly <laughs> violating borders um often you know much to the annoyance of his superiors but these superiors would then kind of almost always retrospectively validate those border violations and would almost incorporate what they then entailed on the part of the colonial state into kind of official policy um and into the sort of official definition of british colonial sovereignty um so it was this kind of creeping boundary line where that, that was created by these sort of repeated violations by the men on the spot of existing border arrangements um and I suppose just to say quickly on this, just a quick historiographical point, one of the things I was really concerned with is to to go against uh, a line of argument that was really expressed back in the 1960s um, in uh, this very famous article um, called The Turbulent Frontier by, by Galbraith um, and uh, John Galbraith. And Galbraith in, in this article kind of claims that British expansion in colonial India, was almost driven by this turbulence beyond their frontiers, which created these kind of political vacuums that sucked the British in. And this always struck me as, you know, a kind of profoundly morally problematic argument, and also just an empirically problematic argument. Um, and what I wanted to insist on was that actually that that turbulence was often very deliberately caused by and driven by the actions of colonial officials, um, particularly during this period, sort of around the 1870s. So that's kind of version two uh, of bordering. And then the third period kind of comes about either side of the turn of the 20th century, um, really in the 1890s in relation to the Northwest, uh, and then more in the kind of 19 hundreds 1910s uh, in the case of the northeast um, and was distinguished by a kind of heightened attention to international boundary making um, but what, what what i'm as i sort of alluded to earlier what i'm at pains to insist uh, in the portion of the chapter that alludes this these later uh, boundaries is that although they might seem superficially to be these kind of modern, fixed, unitary borders, the reality was nothing of the sort whatsoever. Um, they continued to, in essence, kind of encompass or, or to entail a whole range of kind of hazy frontier arrangements, um, of zonal arrangements, of a kind of gradual... Um, diminution of colonial sovereignty and involvement by degrees rather than an absolute stop to it at a single borderline. Um, and so what I sort of want to suggest is almost that it goes full circle. Yes, there are international boundaries and there's more talk of international boundaries or inter-imperial boundaries 
around the turn of the 20th century. But actually, those boundaries are still kind of bedeviled by much the same issues that were present in the earlier 19th century. Um, And it's not such a profound shift as some of the existing historiography and certainly a lot of kind of IR theory uh, or IR informed history would, would have it at this stage. So I hope that gives a decent, if slightly too long, overview of the chapter. Yeah, yeah, that's a really uh, long, uh, interesting overview of the chapter. Yeah, um, let us move on. You know, and the chapter and in, in, in next chapter you talk about surveys and map, and obviously uh, the survey data and maps are something which is really important because it not only tells you what the lane is all about, what kind of lane is there, but also what to do with the lane, and that is where in this chapter you also argue how frontiers became increasingly central to colonial spatial uh, knowledge, right? The knowledge of science, and you also talk about trigonometry metrical surveying so uh, can you explain uh, the aspect of that yeah yeah absolutely um i mean maps uh i I should say again going back to the sort of more autobiographical register (laughs) um, of how this book came about and what i'm trying to do with it um i guess i became increasingly interested in history of science and particularly history of cartography throughout this project i was lucky enough to um you know be doing my phd at the same time as some really you know, good scholars who have become good friends, um, who are historians of science. Um, And there were lots of very productive conversations that came out of that. And part of what that prompted me to do was to, I suppose, go from using maps as a kind of conventional source type to, you know, explore alongside documentary sources, to actually, you know, really think a lot more about the process of surveying map production map dissemination and map reception the way that maps were used and interpreted what was made of them um than than i had been previously um and i guess out of that um yeah one of the things that really struck me um was this this point that you know as i was saying a little earlier um frontiers weren't just areas of kind of information deficit. They were they were areas where new ways of knowing were innovated, right? Um, and th- there are some really good examples of that around um, trigonometric surveying. So trig surveying is a form of surveying that uses these instruments called theodolites, um, which basically involve, um, well, a compass on a horizontal plane and a compass on a vertical plane and they uh, the the ultimate aim is to create these interlinked series of triangles um the distance of which and the angles between which uh are known (laughs) um and fixed such that um both lateral horizontal distance and altitude can be measured to a very high degree of accuracy. Um, trigonometric surveying was the, the kind of gold standard of surveying throughout the mid to later 19th century. Um, but as I show in the chapter, often there was sort of recourse to more rudimentary forms of surveying in frontier regions um you know it, it, the trig surveying was very labor intensive um it involved huge instruments it tends to involve quite large retinues of baggage carriers um and forms of labor and also often kind of ecological destruction in order to take the measurements so you know cutting down trees that sort of thing um 
that weren't always possible. Um, so an older, as it were, forms of surveying persisted. Um, generally, we'd call them route surveys or something to that effect. So, but, but trig surveying did come in. And uh, what I try to outline is how the particular challenges of surveying in frontier regions, um, so which included, for instance, um, trying to take um, sightings of very distant mountains, um, high mountains, um, trying to uh, take these visual readings in desert spaces where there was really intense, extreme fluctuations of refraction. Um, so, you know, the, the, basically the light bending um, and throwing off these measurements um, prompted surveyors to adopt quite radically new techniques to come up with new uh, instruments or add-ons to instruments to try to kind of suppress the errors that were coming in um, at this stage. And ultimately, I argue it's in frontier regions that you start to get surveyors whose you know job after all it is to accurately depict the territory or to accurately represent the territory, acknowledging that there are fundamental limitations to their ability to do this. And I thought that that kind of moment of almost like uh, a certain form of kind of reflexive critique um, that was going on in surveying and the fact that was something that came about in frontier space um, was really significant and something that I sort of wanted to, you know, to prioritise. Um, so I guess the chapter is concerned, yeah, with those kind of... Uh, you know the, the need to innovate new techniques in the field it's also concerned with trying to suggest that contrary to a lot of work on maps and surveying just in general this isn't limited to either frontiers of india or indeed to colonial south asia in general but much more broadly that we really need to focus on not just on the production of maps but on the reception of maps um there's this kind of lingering notion that maps have a peculiar power to them um, that came about, and I won't go into detail on this because it's probably not that interesting to that many people, um, but it came about um, in the historiography, particularly around the 1980s and 90s, with this kind of infusion of Foucauldian theory into history of cartography, which was brilliant and much needed and you know really interesting. Um, but I think it ultimately goes a bit too far <laughs> at times and sort of suggests that maps are these kind of all-powerful entities that are read in only ever read in one way um, and only ever used in particular sort of single ways. And what actually I was, you know, pleasantly surprised to find is that colonial memoirs and, you know, colonial archival materials actually have really plentiful evidence that they are not only used in one way. <laughs> they're used in lots of different ways and their objects are quite intense dispute, um, both among colonial personnel, but also when colonial personnel come into contact with either, uh, you know, powers... Uh, beyond so for instance the emir of afghanistan in the 1890s took great pleasure in mocking british maps um as kind of basically inaccurate totally inadequate not at all where you know where they said things were um but also in relation to kind of frontier communities um to certain tribal groups um who you know were actually yeah incredibly interesting critics of maps and of cartography and who kind of put 
the machinery of cartography and the output of cartography, you know, the printed maps to, to quite different uses at times. So yeah, the chapter's um, concerned with how mapping wasn't just this sort of unilateral power project, um, but instead was uh, a much more kind of convoluted process that involved all sorts of forms of resistance and uncertainty alongside the kind of colonial definition of sovereignty and of territory. Yes, yes. And that's a really interesting take on uh, map and colonial fonties. Uh, so moving on, um, I think the next um, thing that you actually talk about is ethnography. Now, obviously coming from the Northeast India, and uh, when we talk about ethnography, obviously, uh, till today, we continue to kind of uh, juggle with the ethnographic writings that are there. And, you know, we also continue to juggle with the kind of opinions that comes up and how do we understand the writings and, you know, how do we understand their understanding of us and all of those aspects are there. So this is where you also talk about the production, dissemination, reception of uh, British knowledge of the frontier inhabitants. So, yeah, can you delve into this aspect? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I suppose one thing that I'm very much aware of is the incredible wealth of scholarly work in anthropology coming out of social anthropology um, on particularly the Northeast, but also, you know, to a substantial extent, the Northwest. Um you know, one of one of the scholars who whose work most influenced me, and in fact, one of the uh, the examiners of my PhD thesis on which the book is based, is Magnus Marsden, uh, who works on on the Northwest, um, and you know has done absolutely amazing anthropological work on the kind of life worlds of you know frontier inhabitants and border crossing communities in the Northwest. Um, I don't claim to do anything of that sort. I'm very much a historian of uh, nascent anthropology and its predecessors, so ethnography and ethnology, um, as they were termed in the 19th century. Um, And I guess, yeah, what I'm interested in in the chapter, it really resonates with what I've said about maps already. And I mean, you touched on it in the question as well. Um, I'm interested in trying to take as kind of finer grain perspective on actually you know how knowledge is produced and then how it circulates um, and how it's put to work um, in often quite varied ways Um, like in the chapter on mapping I'm very concerned with critical readings of uh, visual material Um, so I go into I think quite a lot of detail um, in analysing some quite amazing materials, um, some of which are particularly held in the Pitt Rivers Museum uh, in Oxford, um, which are kind of ethnographic sketches um, and photographs. Um, And uh, what I'm, you know, really concerned with in, in doing that work with visual material is to go against uh, quite an influential kind of theory coming out of um, uh, the sociology and history of science um, put forward by Bruno Latour, um, the recently deceased um, French sociologist uh, of science, um, who gave this brilliant account quite a few decades ago now um, of, of uh, in fact, of maps as so-called immutable mobiles. Um, so, you know, these objects that carry knowledge because they can travel across space without any substantive alteration. 
Um, and what I try to do actually is to sort of play with this a bit and to say that, in fact, when it comes to ethnographic depictions in these regions, what we're really looking at much more often are what I call mutable mobiles, right? Um, they are images that are changed and are repurposed and are, you know, recolored or, uh, you know, for instance, there are examples of um, depictions of Nagas um, from south of the Brahmaputra Valley um, in what's now Nagaland, um, uh, you know, being kind of uh, re-sketched with a totally different ensemble of um you know, weaponry, um, very different kind of cultural markers uh, and status markers and so on that fundamentally change the kind of significance of the, the original depiction. And so what I tried to show is actually that there's a lot of mutability that is significant to these kind of visual depictions becoming useful bearers of knowledge and of information. And it's through such mutability that, you know, knowledge is produced, right? Um, so that's one of the the kind of major claims that I'm trying to trying to make. Um, again, I think a little like with the example of trig surveying in the case of cartography. Um, another that I try to suggest is that these frontier regions were absolutely crucial to the development of you know, really radical new theories, colonial theories of things like the tribe in India, which was becoming, which became, I guess, increasingly important in a more general sense across colonial South Asia in the later 19th century, uh, particularly around the time that sort of India-wide uh, censuses um, kind of came into operation um, and other projects like lingu the Linguistic Survey of India also came in. What I argue is that within those sort of projects, frontiers actually had a sort of outsized significance. They were, they were much more uh, important, as it were, um, than their you know physical size and their population statistics um, would would lead us to perhaps expect, um, and they were really at the core of kind of colonial theorising on quite big questions to do with the origins um, of you know the people of India, um, to do with uh, racial theories um, that were kind of attached um, to various communities within India and so on and so forth. So in other words, this was knowledge that, you know, was really sort of to quite a significant extent frontier knowledge um, that was then kind of exported to the supposed heartlands of the colony rather than it being, you know, rather than the frontier again being a region where knowledge and information was just scanty and kind of absent. Um, in fact, there was a lot of knowledge and a lot of information um, and a lot of confusion um, and a lot of disputation uh, that took place around this. But it was very kind of productive disputation that led to a lot of new theorising that made its way not only across the subcontinent, but also in turn back to Europe, back to London, you know, into Germany <laughs> and elsewhere. Um, so that's, that's, I think, hopefully an overview of the major concerns of that chapter. Yes, a really nice overview of how the journey of knowledge takes place. Now, you move on to violence. And I think um, 
I come from Nagaland, you know, northeast of India. And one of the things about Nagaland is also uh, with the colonial administration, the coming of Christianity, and also how, you know, the very interesting thing about for me in terms of uh, violence is how we now actually remember the violence that had happened during that time, right? And there is so much uh, being really, uh, you know, kind of um, mixed with her, the Christianity and the, our own understanding of us being barbaric and something that good has come that, you know, help us kind of uh, come out of, you know, from darkness to light as we talk about and all, all, all of those aspects. And this is where you also conceptualize the colonial state use of violence as atavistic. Now, uh, can you delve into that and explain what it really is? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I suppose one thing to say is that, you know, what I'm trying to do in this chapter is I would hope somewhat sort of complementary to the work that you and, you know, others um, are doing in relation to kind of Naga and the tribal identities um, in the Northeast and indeed, you know, uh, tribal identities in the Northwest, particularly around Pashtun uh, communities. Um, it's sort of something of a kind of a partial prehistory <laughs> to some of that. Um, I suppose what I'm trying to do in the in the chapter really, um, and I'll get to the point about about the sort of atavistic nature uh, of colonial violence, which really I'm adapting from from other scholars, um, is thinking through colonial ascriptions of some form of kind of innate violence to frontier communities. And also, and at the same time, colonial deployments of violence of, you know, in incredibly extensive and bloody and horrendous forms of violence against those same communities. Because I think the two, you know, I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that the two worked in tandem, right? Um, often an ascription of violence to tribal communities was the, the, the kind of starting point for then enacting violence against those same communities there was all sorts of uh rhetoric and you know very kind of commonplace feature of a lot of colonial archival records um is the idea that la uh, violence is a language um violence is a language that is understood by the communities against whom it is meted out um is the very troubling and you know, very frequent uh, claim that's made across northeast and northwest. Um, so, what do I mean by it being atavistic? Um, so, I, I really, it's great. It's great that you mentioned that word because it's actually one that I haven't thought about <laughs> since writing the book that much. So, I'm having to pick my own brains. So, it comes out of work, uh, particularly by um, a historian of, of Portuguese Timor um, called Ricardo Roca. Um, who has written uh, what I think is a brilliant book on headhunting and colonialism in uh, Timor um, in the sort of late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, and I guess I'm trying to sort of play with this term a little bit. So what I mean by it is that it's to try to capture what I think was the sort of fundamental condition of British frontier violence during the 19th century and well into the 20th, which is, on the one hand, an acknowledgement that it that the forms of violence that they enacted, or a claim that the forms of violence they enacted were totally necessary, 
um, in order to gain any sort of traction, in order to communicate, again, this idea of language uh, with, uh, with frontier populations. But then on the other hand, that the forms of violence that they used were essentially morally problematic um, and not what a supposedly civilised state did. So what I'm trying to capture is then this idea of a kind of form of self-awareness of the, as they would have seen it, barbaric quality of their own violence and the ways in which they had to continually try to justify this um, kind of to themselves and to others within the colonial kind of the machinery of government, right? Um, and so what you end up finding, uh, and what I, I, I guess I was trying to really sort of get to grips with, with, you know, the reason that I deployed this idea of activism at all, really, was coming across repeatedly th- th- this idea in, you know, in archival materials of the kind of cyclicality of colonial violence, that essentially there would be an episode of colonial violence, it would fail on its own terms to achieve anything like what it was supposedly going to achieve. Um, it would, you know, often I should add, just because it failed doesn't mean it wasn't horrendously violent and problematic, uh, and you know, led to any number of. Uh, people killed, displaced, um, you know, entire villages raised uh, to the ground and so on and so on and so on. Um, you know, crops destroyed, you know, fam- like relatively localised famines induced, all sorts of like really horrendous effects. But even then it didn't have the effect the colonial officers that promoted it initially said it would. However, give it often only a few years or perhaps a couple of decades and exactly the same thing would happen again and exactly more or less the same arguments would be put into play to justify it and there are particular case studies that i draw out in the chapter one of them focuses on this uh, area that the british called the black mountain um up in sort of to to the northern uh to the north of punjab um where this kind of cycle of violence becomes really uh, compressed. So you just have repeated so-called military expeditions almost every year for a few years around the 1880s, 1890s, all hugely destructive, all totally ineffective on their own terms. And it was trying to kind of get to grips with that, that I suppose I started playing with this idea of, you know, colonial atavism, this awareness of the morally compromised nature of their own violence. Um, and the idea that they were sort of, in a sense, risking becoming what they thought of as tribal <laughs> in order to gain traction among tribal communities. Um, so that's really what I'm talking about with with that term, um, is trying to kind of unpick that, um, I suppose, paradox of a sort or that, that complication, that sort of knotty um, set of concerns that I think were, were there when colonial violence was meted out. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. I'm sure the uh, listeners were really kind of um, 
continue to delve deeper into trying to understand violence in that sense as you have brought out these aspects. Now, the last aspect that you talk about is administration. Obviously, administration has a long-lasting impact on how not only how they administer uh, the people, but also at the same time how their society gets, the people's society gets structured. And um, this is where obviously it's also connected to the thing that you talk about, violence, and also you also talk about displacement. And this is where I think very... Uh, Pointedly, you talk about the front frontier governmentality, and I think um, this aspect of administration. So, can you kind of delve uh, into the this frontier British government, I know, um, kind of administration that was there during the yeah frontiers in nineteenth century? Yeah, yeah. So, I I, I guess um, here's where you, you know one of the historians I mentioned earlier, who the the, the guy who. Uh, lectured me at undergraduate level really comes in um so benjamin hopkins um who's you know written uh, a few works now that really do i think a fantastic job of kind of unpacking this idea of frontier governmentality um and it should be added in a, in a recent book um you know he really kind of internationalizes this from south asia and sort of shows how related forms of frontier governmentality were operating in the Americas. Um, so not only in the United States, but also in Argentina um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of trying to develop some of uh, Ben's ideas um, in, in using that. I think where I kind of maybe nuance that, that concept. So, I, I mean, first of all, just to outline what he means by it. Um, basically, I suppose the, the, what I take to be the defining feature of, Ben Hopkins' definition of frontier governmentality is this notion that um, instead of at frontiers, as opposed to sort of, as it were, normally governed regions, the colonial state began to treat um, uh, its, you know, governed population or semi-governed population, not as subjects of empire, but as what Hopkins refers to as objects. So they're objects that were to be not to be governed in a sort of uh, a kind of positive, ostensibly positive progressive sense, but just to be managed in this very kind of securitized, heavily surveilled sense, um, you know, featuring a lot of violence, um, featuring kind of rigid categorizations that basically serve to kind of other these populations and to make them seem as though they could in no way be kind of assimilated into anything like a kind of body politic. Um, I guess I sort of see it slightly differently um, in that I think there were, if you like, varying forms of go- uh, frontier governmentality, all of which were different from, as it were, normal governmentality, um, normal forms of, of government and state power um, as they appeared in you know, the kind of heartland regions of British India. Um, but I don't always think it was quite, I think they sort of oscillate or they, they, they're they on a sort of sliding scale between viewing frontier inhabitants uh, and populations as objects to be managed and subjects to be governed. Um, so, and, and often I think what you can see in sort of particular subsections of the frontier is that, policies you know vary often and, and often kind of go back and forth between um those two extremes between sort of subjects to be governed and to sort of be incorporated in some way um and objects to be managed 
I sort of distanced, but kind of surveilled and controlled. Um, and I suppose I, I, what what I kind of interpret this as is above all uh, a byproduct of repeated failure. <laughs> um, so the colonial state, despite you know multiple and often fairly onerous interventions um, and these sort of quite elaborate administrative schemes that they try to enact in frontier regions, you know, new legal codes, um, structures uh, that kind of seek to subcontract various sovereign functions to local potentates um, and their followers, those kind of things. Despite those, there's almost always a degree of sort of tumult um, and that leads to this kind of oscillation between those those two extremes that I set out. And to my mind, it's it's in that kind of variability that we should understand frontier governmentality rather than it just being attached to a kind of fixed pole at one end of that. So that's how I I, I suppose differ a little from from Ben's brilliant work um, on on this. Um, I suppose just one one other thing it might just be worth adding uh, is, and and I I think it's a direct implication of what I've just said is that particularly in the northwest, there's a long established historiography that sort of focuses in very kind of high grand strategic terms on a supposed shift from a so-called closed border to a forward policy. So I, a policy that sort of seeks to instantiate a fixed border beyond which exist tribal environs that the British have little to do with. And then supposedly later, a more sort of expansionist policy into those regions. Again, I don't see it as a sort of shift from one to the other. I see it as a kind of forms of oscillating between the two. And there's, and, and, once again, this kind of theme of almost cyclicality, I think, is quite important, um, as is the case with violence. Um, failure and cyclicality go hand in hand. You know, there's these repeated attempts to do something different, only for that to then fail and then it to return to a, you know, another extreme, only for that to fail and then return to the, <laughs> the opposite extreme. Um, so, yeah, what the chapter is trying to do is through case study material to outline that particular dynamic, that sort of cyclical dynamic, and that the peculiar forms of kind of awareness of failure um, that, that, as it were, haunt uh, imperial frontier administration and kind of act as the motor for it. Yes, I think that that was a very wonderful conversation and a very wonderful take on the, your arguments and the contents that you have in the book. Now, as we come to the end of the conversation and at the end of the uh, podcast, in the beginning, you mentioned about what you're actually working on currently, but uh, can you elaborate more on the current project that you're working on? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, um, as I said, in some ways, it's, it's quite different, although uh, I'll try to draw out some of the threads that connect it. So what I'm working on is this project called Making Climate History. Um, it's a history of climate sciences from the late 18th to the late 20th centuries. Um, I'm lucky enough to be doing quite a range of things on it. So I've uh, had to train as a, an oral historian, which has been good fun. Um, and I've interviewed 
uh, a number of climate scientists. Um, but the real focus of, of or the, the main bulk of my work on the project is um, looking at um, basically a co- uh, uh, the precursors to a concept of global temperature. Um, so global temperature being the metric that is perhaps the most uh, regular shorthand for anthropogenic climate change today. So when we hear you know the slogan "keep 1.5 degrees alive," um, what it's alluding to is a metric of global temperature. Um, what I'm concerned with, along with some of my other colleagues on this project who variously look at uh, French colonial Egypt um, and uh, British colonial Australia. Um, Obviously, I'm coming at it with something of a South Asia bias, um, is to look at the kind of colonial imperial roots of metrics of and methods of measuring global temperature. Um, One of the things I'm working on right now, which I think picks up on this kind of enduring interest in frontiers is to think about how glaciers um, in the greater Himalaya are used as um, kind of climatic measuring devices um, from really the sort of mid to late 19th century onwards um, and are taken as sort of indices of regional, if not global climate um so that's one aspect of it another one that sort of picks up on the frontier interest um and actually really addresses something that i'm very aware is absent in the book um and you know i'm sort of sorry it's absent in a way but it's prompted work since um is to think about um resource extraction frontiers particularly coal mining uh, frontiers um, as sites of climatic and environmental knowledge production. Um, so I'm currently investigating some case study material, which I'm really enjoying, uh, that look at coal mines in eastern India in the 1830s. And I try to tell a story around sort of thermometry um, assaying, so testing of coal um, and the ways that that then feeds into climate imaginaries and climatic uh, and speculations about the sort of deep history of temperature change um, across the earth. Um, So, yeah, I I guess I'm still very interested in, you know, field sciences, um, in how they operate, in how uh, theories and data are constructed and then transmitted and received. So there's some sort of continuity in thematic terms as well. Um, and I still have something of a South Asia focus in my current work, um, even if I'm aware that a lot of what I do now isn't resolutely South Asianist in focus. Yeah, I mean, really interesting project um, ahead of you. And so if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding this conversation or regarding the work that you are doing, uh, how do they reach out to you? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, um, and one that actually isn't that easy to answer because I am about to start a new job as of two weeks' time, uh, two weeks tomorrow, <laughs> and I don't yet have an email address. <laughs> so um, probably the best place to go through is my academia.edu page, um, which I, I suppose, try to keep moderately up to date, and I will try to answer messages on. Um, as... I was saying when we were chatting before the podcast began, it's always a real pleasure to hear from people. So I'm always delighted when <laughs> anyone gets in touch. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear from people if anyone's interested. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Thomas Simpson. It has been really wonderful having this conversation with you. I'm, I'm sure the listeners have really enjoyed uh, this conversation with you, and I'm sure the listeners will continue to prop into the discussion that you generate through the book and also uh, will continue the discussion um, ahead of us. And also, I wish you best for the current project, that very interesting project that you are kind of uh, you know into. So, yeah, thank you very much. And yeah, bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. Thanks very much.